Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Welcome everyone to episode 67 of True Blue Crime. My name's Sean and with me as always is my co-host Chloe. How are you doing? Good. 2021, we're here and really it only has one job, which is to be equal or moderately better than 2020. So I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing, but I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, I think we're off to a good start, although we are just starting <laughs> uh, some two months into the year. So it was a bit of a long break. We probably wanted to be back a couple of weeks ago, I think, but that's uh, such is life. Exactly. So they say uh, things come up and, and get in the way, but we're here. We're ready to go. And we've got a uh, part one of a, a series of episodes today, um, something that. Uh, I think everyone's going to be excited to hear. Yeah, definitely. And we've had quite a few Patreons join our crew over our break and we will start to work through the backlog and give you all shout outs starting next week. But we appreciate you all so much and we've been seeing it come through and just thank you so much. But we'll shout you out by name starting next week. And the case we're discussing today contains extreme violence and discussions of drug use. Some of the content is difficult to hear, so we'd encourage our listeners to exercise self-care when listening to this episode. Today, we've got part one of the Melbourne gangland killings for you all, a huge case we've had requested a number of times. This will be a multi-part series, potentially five parts to this, and midweek we'll be releasing some additional minisodes or interludes, which will just give everyone some additional context and information to help kind of link each part together. Depending on what you read, some people will say the Melbourne gangland killings began as early as 1995, others say closer to 1999. Whatever the case, alongside the fact that 36 people were killed during this 10 to 15 year period, there's two additional things that can't be disputed. Firstly, this wasn't the first gangland war in Melbourne. In the 60s and 70s, at the height of the notorious Painters and Dockers Union's power, it's estimated that some 40 to 50 people were potentially killed during this period of time. The difference was, the old school crooks kept it quiet. The murders weren't committed in front of friends and families or anywhere the general public could readily access. This wouldn't be the case with the Melbourne gangland killings, as the blood quite literally spilled out onto the streets as the bodies piled up for all of Melbourne to see. 
Secondly, this war was about one thing, drugs. And to quote Don Vito Corleone from the Godfather film, a film we'll hear referenced quite a bit throughout this saga, it's true, I have a lot of friends in politics, but they wouldn't be so friendly if they knew my business was drugs instead of gambling, which they consider a harmless vice. But drugs? That's a dirty business. Sixth of February, nineteen ninety-five, Carlton, Victoria. Alphonse left Ligon Street and went to the Richmond Hotel to attend the wake of a dearly departed. He drank and punted until midnight, leaving for a party in St Kilda. He arrived at number one Wando Grove in the early morning hours, a skinful of alcohol and a nose full of cocaine amping his default agitated state. The otherwise sedate party, celebrating the release of a man named Mark Isbet, who'd gotten bail on armed robbery charges that day, turned sour around quarter to four in the morning. As two partygoers left, they saw Alphonse out the front, his blood boiling amidst a verbal tirade he was unleashing on a man named Greg Workman. Alphonse took issue with Greg over what he perceived to be an outstanding debt. He hadn't paid Alphonse back, and it was time to collect. When it became evident Greg didn't have the money and the prospect of collecting vanished, Alphonse decided on a different approach. He unloaded a pistol into Greg Workman instead. Known as the Black Prince of Ligon Street to those who feared him and the Plastic Godfather to those who doubted him, Alphonse Gangitano was as unpredictable as the Melbourne weather. An imposing figure in his expensive wool blend suits, Italian leather loafers and dark slicked back hair, he carved out a reputation of possessing an unparalleled propensity for violence. But his life didn't start out that way. Alphonse Gangitano was born on the 22nd of April 1957 to parents Maria and Dominique. The family lived in Carlton and were successful law-abiding folk, with Dominique and Maria working as travel agents and investing in property in the local area. Alphonse went to Catholic primary school in East Melbourne before going on to attend Marcelin, De La Salle and Taylor's College. He was a big kid with a big attitude, always landing himself in hot water with his smart mouth. Trips to the principal's office were commonplace, but it didn't deter Alphonse, who cared little for his academic studies. He was much more interested in boxing and football. As he grew older, Alphonse began to park in his teacher's car spaces and began idolising the stylized image of gangsters, having posters of Al Capone and Al Pacino alongside his favourite movies Scarface and The Godfather. Alphonse was 16 when he got his first gun, a sawn-off shotgun, and he got it from none other than Mark Chopper Reed. Chopper was only 19 at the time, but had made an impression on the younger Alphonse. Still, Alphonse didn't aspire to be Chopper. He wanted to be a criminal, that was for sure, but following the Hollywood image he'd cultivated in his mind, he knew who he wanted to be from a very young age and worked about building his personal brand of the romanticised Italian gangster. One of Alphonse's earliest hobbies during his time on the streets and in the clubs as a young buck was to look for off-duty police to beat up. 
As we said, he loved boxing, knew how to fight, and was a big, strong bloke. And this pastime was completely for amusement and to build up his own name. Alphonse would know when these coppers were off duty, drinking, and he'd deliberately annoy them, step on their foot or something to get them to flash their badge and tell him to pull his head in. Next thing they knew, when the off-duty officer was taking a leak, Alphonse would roll in and unleash a flurry of blows. In 1980, Alphonse was hanging around a club called Mickey's Disco in St Kilda. This place was well known in the underworld at this time, and in fact it was owned, or at least in part, by a guy named Christopher Flannery. Flannery was an underworld hitman, nicknamed Rent-A-Kill. And at this time, he was up on a murder charge of a guy named Roger Wilson. And as the story goes, there was a woman named Deborah Boundy who was set to testify against Flannery, and her testimony could quite easily put him away. As the allegation goes, Flannery, who thought of Alphonse as a newbie but useful nonetheless, employed his services to engage Deborah Boundy. It's been alleged, though never proven, that Alphonse picked Deborah up in Rathdown Street. They had a coffee, then went back to her place for some coke, where he administered her a hot shot of drugs that led to her death. Deborah Boundy officially died of a drug overdose. But many years later, these allegations of Alphonse's potential involvement surfaced. In the time after this, Alphonse began to mix with what's best described as a loose association of colourful characters, many with criminal convictions, and they'd become known in the media as the Carlton Crew. In the underbelly TV show dramatisation, this crew met in the footy grandstands to discuss business. In reality, that never occurred, and these guys were more friends, sometimes business partners, and allies for the most part. While there were undoubtedly other people involved with this crew, for a lack of a better term, the core group in popular culture consisted of a few former Painter and Dockers union members, namely Graham Kinnebra and Lewis Moran, and his sons, Mark and Jason Moran, alongside Alphonse and a couple of other guys from Italian backgrounds as well, Mick Gatto and Mario Condello. All of these guys made their cash in different ways. Kinnebra, who we discussed at length in episode 57 on the Magnetic Drill Gang, was an old-school safecracker with a wise and calm head on his shoulders. Lewis Moran had come up in the SP bookies with his father Desi and dabbled in fencing stolen goods or whatever else he could turn into a buck. His sons Mark and Jason had followed suit, following their hard-drinking painters and dockers lineage. Mick Gatto was into illegal gambling, Baccarat and two-up, before later moving into the industrial sector, mediation and arbitration. Mario Condello was a former lawyer, allegedly turned money launderer and loan shark. Alphonse, who was close with Mick Gatto in their younger days, initially had stakes in the illegal gambling game too. He doubled in race fixing, but really his trade was protection rackets or standover tactics. While Alphonse called it property consultancy, in reality, he waltzed into bars, clubs, cafes and threatened the owner for protection money or else he'd start bashing patrons. He also developed a penchant for kneecapping people with bullets. There were a few stories, some confirmed to be true and some disputed, in which Alphonse got trigger happy, plugging a rival standover man or local drug dealer in the knee. All of this served to grow Alphonse's reputation within the Melbourne criminal underworld. He was no longer a young street hood, but a feared street boss with a burgeoning criminal enterprise. He began attracting more and more police attention, 
And with his taste for fighting police, Alphonse received a number of charges for resisting arrest and assaulting police. But these charges were consistently thrown out, which led to speculation on the street that Alphonse had some influence within Victoria Police. This wasn't a stretch to imagine at the time. As we'll see, corruption, particularly within the drug squad of Vicpol, was rife around this time. And it only served to further Alphonse's reputation as the Black Prince of Ligon Street. One night, after the cops had been harassing one of his many gambling games, Alphonse went to the Dover Hotel, where he met his old colleague, Mark Chopper-Reed. Chopper had spent much of the past decade or more in Pentridge Prison, while Alphonse had been strutting around Ligon Street, busting baristas and barmen for protection money. As the pair chatted, Chopper mentioned that he wanted to belt a bloke named Shane Goodfellow if he ran into him. Unbeknownst to Chopper, Shane Goodfellow, whatever grievance he'd drummed up with him, was in Alphonse's good graces at this time. Things had changed in the past decade. In his usual style, Alphonse waited until Chopper had his trousers down around his ankles, making use of the porcelain in the stalls, when he and a couple of his cronies stormed in and began laying into Chopper. Chopper, who, according to him, took a moment to wipe himself when the onslaught began, started swinging bombs in self-defence. When he looked up at his attackers, he discovered Alphonse wasn't there anymore. He'd taken off. Chopper was fighting the bouncers. This naturally soured things between the pair moving forward, and as the story goes... Chopper went on a rampage hunting Alphonse, shooting up places where Alphonse was involved and carrying around a few sticks of gelignite to use against the bloke when he finally caught up with him. One time, Chopper caught up to Alphonse at one of his gambling nights, with the aforementioned artillery strapped to his person. Alphonse pushed his way out of a bathroom window, jumped off the roof and landed on a Mercedes to get away. After resting his injured back, Alphonse sought the advice of his mate, Mick Gatto, telling him, Chopper's after me with a few sticks of gelignite, what should I do? Ultimately, with the unhinged Chopper on the loose, Alphonse, the family man, who had a wife named Virginia and two daughters at this time, fled to Italy. He returned to Melbourne only when news of Chopper being arrested for attempted murder in Tasmania came to light. In the time after this, business for Alphonse began to take a dive. Not that he'd ever appeared to be the world's sharpest businessman, but drugs now would seriously start creeping into Alphonse's world and into the broader criminal underworld. They'd always existed, of course, but there was a new wave and new set of opportunities on the horizon with respect to party drugs. Cocaine only inflated Alphonse's already brimming ego. He needed more money to sustain his lifestyle and maintain the image and reputation he carved out for himself. He began to carry pink slips around in his car and, rumour has it, would just go up to people in the Carlton area and demand their keys. Do you know who I am? I'm Alphonse Gangitano. What are you going to do about it? Far as drugs went, Alphonse was using more than he sold at this time. He'd attempt to change that soon, though. For now, he was trying to forge a solid front, like all good cooks have. And for Alphonse, it was owning a few racehorses and getting into boxing promotions. Superstar promotions he'd set up, snagging super lightweight champion Lester Ellis to promote. The problem was, Alphonse's attempt to have a seemingly legitimate dealings were mostly failures. He was a poor decision maker, gambling more money than he made. A casino venture in Fitzroy, for example, folded after two days of opening when police raided the place. This lost Alphonse close to 300k. The police, meanwhile, didn't know what to make of him. 
Was he just a flash middleweight or the new godfather of Melbourne? On July the 12th, 1985, there was a big fight for the IBF super lightweight title, Lester Ellis versus Barry Michael. Alphonse bet heavily on his superstar Ellis, but it was Barry Michael who won the fight on points after 15 tough rounds. There was talk of a rematch, but it didn't transpire. So two years later, still bitter over the loss, Alphonse and some of his crew were at a restaurant in Melbourne when he saw none other than Barry Michael having dinner with his wife and a friend of theirs. At first, Alphonse was cordial, sending a bottle of wine to their table before asking Michael to come over for a quick chat. Michael reluctantly agreed, knowing full well who Gangitano was. Alphonse promptly suggested a rematch to Michael before calling him a has-been who was running scared. Michael retorted that he'd rather be a has-been than a never-was. Alphonse leapt up and threw himself at Michael, trying to bite the boxer's nose off, while his cronies, who'd left the table to let the pair talk, began to rough up Michael's wife and friend at their table. This was just one example of Alphonse's ultra-violence, his increasing paranoia and psychotic mood swings. By this time, he'd managed to put a number of his friends offside too, having had minor fallings out with Mick Gatto and Mario Condello. On the surface, all was sweet, but beneath, tensions were simmering as Alphonse was becoming more and more of a liability. He became quite tight with Jason Moran, the youngest of the Moran boys, the pair striking a kinship over their mutual love for hard drinking, partying and bashing people. They worked protection rackets together and Jason was making a killing in the party drug scene around this time, moving into the 90s. But Alphonse wasn't making enough. His horses were floundering, his boxing promotion was going nowhere and his illegal gambling games were dwindling. Legislation had changed with the introduction of Crown Casino and there were now much harsher penalties around illegal gambling, making the risk-reward much less enticing for Melbourne's criminal enclave. It was time to diversify, and Alphonse had two options at his disposal, bashing more people for cash and drug trafficking. He'd ultimately choose both, but this was really where the seeds of the Melbourne gangland killings were sown. The one reason behind it all, drugs. This wasn't some glamorous, hierarchical struggle for honour and status. This was about drugs and money. In 1994, police took down a man named John Higgs, who was the head of a $400 million drug cartel and had the current trade in Melbourne cornered. This effectively stamped out his operations to a large extent. Higgs was the founder of the Melbourne chapter of the Black Yulins Outlaw Motorcycle Club and a very influential figure in the amphetamines trade at this time. His removal from the scene left what was described as a power vacuum within Melbourne's criminal world, as the struggle for his market share began to bubble away and ultimately boil over. Heroin was controlled largely by the Romanians, Russians and Asians, marijuana by larger Calabrian-style syndicates further north, both of which were too big of a risk to get into. So amphetamines, speed, was where Alphonse Gangitano and many other like-minded criminals turned for new streams of income. And this is where the power struggles began. Greg Workman, a Melbourne-based criminal, was rumoured to have become a decent speed cook around this time. Greg went to Preston East State School and was a big, good-looking kid with a smile that attracted the girls. As a teenager, Greg wrapped up innumerable convictions for assault, burglary and theft, firearms and armed robbery. 
It was as he got older, he moved into dealing marijuana and eventually amphetamines. He was rumoured to have been involved in some infamous robberies during his younger days, including pulling jobs with a younger Mark Moran and Russell Mad Dog Cox. Greg had earned his stripes in the criminal underworld, but one balmy February evening in 1995, all of that would matter very little to one particularly volatile man. This is where we turn our attention back to the introduction of this episode and where most people generally focus on as the very beginning of the gangland killings. A group of crims had gathered for a wake earlier in the day before heading to this party in St Kilda, two of the men being Greg Workman and Alphonse Gangitano. In the Underbelly TV show, the scenario was depicted as Alphonse, portrayed by Vince Colosimo, walking into the party, dressed the part, belligerent as ever, turning off the resident Spiderbait party music before putting on some classical music more to his taste. All the while, Jason Moran, portrayed by Les Hill, took a young woman into a bedroom for some private time. In reality, all of that probably didn't happen, and we know Jason Moran most likely wasn't there, but his character in Underbelly was standing in for a bloke named Martin Paul. After a few hours of drinking and doing lines, Alphonse was first observed arguing with his mate Martin, before he turned his attention to Greg Workman. The pair ended up outside the house in Wando Grove, St Kilda, arguing and were observed by witnesses doing so. Apparently this was all over a gambling debt, or a debt Alphonse perceived was owed to him. The amount in question varies, from as little as $5,000 through to 50000 Whatever the case, it all ended with Alphonse unloading a pistol into Greg Workman. He later died in hospital. Although there were witnesses and a strong case against Alphonse, charges against him for the murder of Greg Workman were ultimately dropped when two sisters who were at the party and had agreed to testify against Alphonse retracted their statements. These sisters had been whisked away by police and put into witness security at a caravan park down in Warrnambool. Unfortunately, Witsec wasn't what it is today, and when the girls, who had been given a bit of a fright, couldn't get through to their police handlers on the phone, they called Jason Moran. They were picked up, taken to lawyer George Defteros, where they promptly withdrew their statements on the record and accepted a paid overseas holiday to England. With Alphonse having declared his innocence in the matter to Vic Pohl and no witnesses left to testify against him, the prosecution case sank. An inquest two years later found that Alphonse did indeed kill Greg Workman, but by then it was too late. Greg Workman's family protested his depiction in the dramatised Underbelly series, asserting that he was no longer involved in the underworld and didn't owe Alphonse any money, and his representation as such was disrespectful to his surviving family members. But back at this time, after Alphonse had shot and killed Greg Workman, he continued escalating alongside his equally aggravated and violent pal, Jason Moran. On the 19th of December 1995, Alphonse and Jason took to a horde of patrons at the sports bar in King Street, smashing them with billiard cues and metal bars. They seriously injured 13 people, 10 were hospitalised, they broke one woman's jaw and severely beat a man named Campbell Lawler, who had only been in Australia for a few days, having travelled from South Africa to visit his sister. Lawler's testimony later on was critical in convicting Jason Moran in the matter, and he noted that the dark rings under Alphonse's eyes and the feeling of dread that he instilled was something that he'd never forget. CCTV was crucial in catching the pair, 
Jason had fled the scene by the time police arrived. Alphonse, however, was still chasing patrons down the street when officers arrived and took him down. Both men were charged with a fray and were set to face the music in court. Well, he got bail and it was said that Alphonse wanted to change his ways after this. His actions sure didn't support that contention. Over the next 12 months, he went on a violent spree. He threatened a bouncer outside Monsoon's nightclub in St Kilda, two police officers in separate incidents where they responded to him in the commission of other assaults. He'd effectively do the same thing every time with these threats, finger gun between the recipient's eyes, do you know who I am, don't fuck with me, etc. After a car accident one morning, he punched a man, stabbed another two with a ballpoint pen and assaulted another man outside the Asteria nightclub in Fitzroy. He was charged for this attack but got bail, struggling to come up with the 10k in cash to do so. Ultimately, these charges were dropped when the victim's testimony was retracted due to him not remembering much of the incident. It was said that Alphonse and Jason even had a fist fight during this time, with Alphonse knocking out his smaller friend, which caused Jason to have convulsions and require hospitalisation. Things were not going well for Alphonse. He was splintering all of his relationships. Things with his wife Virginia, whom he'd met all those years ago at Mickey's Disco, were now fractured. She'd moved out of their Templestowe home, taking their two kids. He was already in the Carlton Crew's bad books, with his constant media attention and general asshole public demeanour. Now, he'd bashed one of his only remaining mates, and according to some reports, even tried to stand over Jason and Mark in some of their drug operations. They'd apparently agreed to cut him in a certain percentage, but this had to have soured things even more. The straw that broke the camel's back came on January 16, 1998, when Alphonse and Jason appeared in the Melbourne Magistrates' Court over the sports bar affray. They were given bail with a 9pm curfew, and the word on the grapevine was that Alphonse was going to plead guilty, thereby leaving his mate, Jason, well and truly in the shit. This was a big no-no in Painters and Dockers' books. Jason was set to plead not guilty, but Alphonse doing the opposite surely wouldn't bode well for him. But unlike Jason, who had his more stable brother Mark and elder statesman like his dad Lewis and Graham Kinneber in his corner trying to keep him on the straight and narrow, Alphonse had nothing but his ego and his legal team to support him. After court, Alphonse had lunch with his solicitor, Dean Cole, before hitting the TAB for a punt. His driver, Santo, then took him back to his home in Glen Orchard Close, Templestowe, where he took a nap for a few hours. Alphonse had bought the place only four months earlier for 260000 but had a $200,000 mortgage. It was well set up with CCTV and quite secluded in its location and orientation on the block, making surveillance difficult. After his nap, Alphonse called his wife, a mate in prison, and finally a Perth-based identity allegedly in similar business circles at this time. Sometime after this in the evening, Graham Kinneborough arrived at Alphonse's house seemingly for an unexpected visit. At least Alphonse hadn't dressed for the occasion if he was expecting visitors, wearing only his underwear and a robe when the veteran safecracker arrived. There's a few theories on what transpired and why in the time after this, but the end result was that Alphonse Gangitano was shot dead in his own home. He was found near the laundry, apparently a location where he hid his gun, and he'd been shot three times. Once through the right cheek, exiting his nose once directly in his skull and once in the back. A fourth shot was fired and missed completely. 
Graham Kinnebra left after Alphonse was shot. Forensically, we know that he was at the scene and he established himself an alibi, purchasing a packet of Benson and Hedges at a nearby convenience store before returning to the home some half an hour later. Virginia had arrived in the meantime and discovered Alphonse's body near the laundry. The most commonly believed theory as to what transpired, and indeed this is depicted in the first Underbelly series, is that Jason Moran arrived sometime during the evening while Graham and Alphonse were talking. The belief police held was that Graham, known for his non-violent resolutions, was there to mediate the rising tension between Alphonse and the Moran clan at this time. But when Jason arrived, that changed and he shot his old buddy Alphonse, predominantly due to the perceived grassing Alphonse was committing by pleading guilty to the sports by affray. Graham Kinneborough, stunned at the sudden and violent outcome, fled the scene, cutting himself on the front security door in his haste. But he then pulled it together, returned inside, and went upstairs to retrieve the videotape from the CCTV system, leaving a smear of blood on the staircase banister. Jason's involvement, or at least his attendance, was confirmed by another small-time crim down the track, a guy named Russell Smith. He was a career criminal who allegedly drove Jason Moran to Alphonse's house that night. We mentioned Russell Smith in the Portland Hair Salon Murders episode, incidentally. Russell later alleged while in jail that Jason had returned to the car, told him that Alphonse had to be put off before the pair then drove to McDonald's for a Big Mac and then drove over the Westgate Bridge where Jason threw a paper bag over the edge with something heavy inside, presumably the gun used to shoot Alphonse. Try as they might, police never recovered the gun and Russell Smith took his own life in jail, apparently fearful of the repercussions of turning on Jason Moran. That's theory number one. A subsequent coroner's inquest would support this in a broad sense, but charges against Jason Moran and Graham Kinnebra were not forthcoming when both stuck to the code of silence. Theory number two, which was put forward by a man named Bert Rout in recent years really, told a slightly different story. Bert, who was a close associate of Louis Moran, alleged he'd given the gun used to shoot Alphonse to Louis, and it was actually Mark Moran who had been there that night, not Jason. This assertion was somewhat supported by an interesting witness. Two witnesses, who we understand were a couple, were in the street in Templestowe that night, and both described seeing a man matching Jason's description leaving the home sometime around 11pm. One of these witnesses, though, were adamant that the man they saw had tattoos and couldn't confirm it was Jason 100% as he didn't have any tattoos. Mark Moran, however, did sport tattoos. According to Bert Rout, Alphonse had to be put off because he was going silly on cocaine and screaming about a debt. A third theory had Graham Kinnebra himself pulling the trigger after Alphonse had allegedly been knocking boots with a young woman Graham and his wife had taken in, like a foster parent set up, I gathered, thereby depriving her of a positive future. Whatever the case, the fact remains that Alphonse had clearly spiralled out of control and burned a number, if not all, of his bridges. While proprietors in Ligon Street undoubtedly jumped for joy at the Black Prince's demise, death notices flooded the papers expressing their admiration and respect for the man. One of them was quite strange and implied that Alphonse had something to do with the 1989 murder of a guy named Jim Panarcos, whose headless body was found on the beach in Rye. He'd been killed with a crossbow. 
The notice said, the impression you left on me will stay forever in my heart, Jim Panarcos. Alphonse's funeral was attended by 800 people at St Mary's Star of the Sea Catholic Church in West Melbourne. A touching final line read during Alphonse's eulogy, which is an Oscar Wilde quote, said, there's only one thing worse than being talked about and that's not being talked about, which was quite apt in Alphonse Gangitano's case. Or you could go with boxer Barry Michael's parting blow. It had to happen sooner or later. The bloke was an animal. You live by the sword, you die by the sword. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. With Alphonse gone, Jason Moran was facing charges for the King Street affray on his lonesome. Charges were initially dropped, but Jason was recharged when the police obtained new important evidence, blood from a victim on his jacket, which they'd been unable to locate initially. Campbell Lawler, the victim from South Africa, bravely returned to Australia to testify, which bolstered the prosecution's case greatly and ultimately led to Jason being convicted. It'd be the first bump on a long and winding road for the Moran family over the next few years. Jason and Mark Moran had grown up in a prominent criminal family. Their grandfather, Desi Moran, and his mates Jimmy Wilson and Mickey March were fixtures at the racetrack, plying their trades as pickpockets, relieving lucky winners of their day's takings. Desi went on to become the leading SP, or starting price bookmaker, in Flemington and Mooney Ponds, while his wife, Belle, performed what was described as backyard abortions. Desi's son, Lewis, was a useful apprentice to the crew throughout the 1960s. His pal, Graham Kinnebra, tagged along too, learning the trade momentarily before finding his niche in safe-cracking. Lewis grew into his father's SP activities and branched out into fencing stolen goods throughout the broader area. The backdrop and front during this time was work on the waterfront, with many being members of the infamous Painters and Dockers Union. Lewis learned early on from his father and mother that no matter what the criminal enterprise, it always held you in good stead to have a local copper in your pocket. And indeed, forging ties with local families who had kids later go on into the blue uniform helped the Morans greatly. Lewis eventually met a woman named Judith Brooks, Judith had grown up around racetrack identities too. Her uncle Boise Brooks was a colleague of Desi Moran. She'd been married to a standover man named Les Johnny Cole. They had a son, Mark, in 1964 before separating and her and Lewis took up in 1966. They went on shortly after in 1967 to have a son together who they named Jason. The Morans always had plenty of coin and the young boys, Mark and Jason, were always cautious to not openly discuss how their unconventional old man got it. They were three years apart in age, but thick as thieves from the very beginning. 
Mark was very protective of his little brother Jason, who at an early age showed an innate ability to land himself in trouble. Mark often stepped in during lunchtime disputes, punching other kids around for his smaller brother. Mark was described as a very charismatic and talented young man, particularly when it came to sports. He was a natural talent on the football field. Jason was not as physically gifted as his older brother, he was more of a scrapper, often found at the bottom of the pack. Mark's charm often saw him talking himself out of trouble, and he regularly employed Jason and other young friends in stealing from local milk bars, fish and chip shops, or breaking into the local showgrounds and racetrack. From around the age of 12, Jason's aggressiveness was on full display at the local Kensington Community School, where he got into fights, calling in his brother as required. The pair went on to attend Penley and Essendon Grammar. Jason began carrying a pistol around the age of 15, which he'd occasionally bring to footy practice and have a friend hold while he trained. After school, Jason worked at an abattoir for three years, honing his drinking skills during this time. Then he worked as a plumber's apprentice for six months, again learning to mostly drink hard at Ascot Vale pubs alongside his brother Mark, who was touted as an up-and-coming local football star around this time. Here they knocked about with footy identities and hard-knock crims alike, their experiences and painter and docker lineage forming their future paths. Jason then went on the books at a jewellery wholesaler for a time where he did very little actual work. As the pair grew older, they became muscle for their old man and moved into the criminal trade of their own accord. They weren't averse to popping a few bullets into the occasional knee or shoulder of someone who might potentially lag on the Moran clan. While Mark was calmer, the brains if you will, and kept a lower profile, Jason was described as having a psychotic edge, a raging ego with a penchant for letting bullets go in nightclubs. He was quite happy to fight and spill blood. Jason fell for a woman named Trish Kane, who was the daughter of a well-known painter and docker named Les Kane. They'd later go on to marry and have children together. By the 90s, Jason, short and stocky with a cropped head and sporting a 12 centimetre scar down one side of his face, result of one of the many brawls he'd gotten into honing his now staunch image in the Melbourne underworld, was making a killing alongside his brother Mark in the drug trade. The pair sold marijuana from bases around the suburbs before getting into running speed labs and eventually pressing pills of amphetamines. When Mark Moran wasn't portraying an unemployed pastry chef at his luxurious million-dollar home in Aberfeldy with his wife Antoinella and kids, he was said to have been enjoying the company of a woman named Danielle Maguire. She was a hairdresser and beautician, and her nickname was the Pill Press Queen. Through their association, Mark had acquired a pill press for them to manufacture their own nightclub clippers. They weren't the only ones doing this at the time. The trade was going through the roof. While making money from drugs, marijuana, cocaine and heroin had always been something the Melbourne criminal underworld had profited from, local manufacturing hadn't really taken off until the mid-90s. Previously, the likes of Melbourne's Honoured Society, a predominantly Italian-Australian organised crime group with ties back to traditional Calabrian families, had imported drugs through the docks and distributed them through the Melbourne fruit and vegetable markets. As time went on, factions splintered and groups like the Carlton Crew emerged. But with pills, they were cheap to make. They could be sold for increasingly more money as youngsters across Melbourne gobbled them up every weekend while taking to the nightclub dance floors. 
The arrest of bigwig John Higgs and his syndicate left a massive void in the local market, and young up-and-comers were set to invest in this increasingly popular sector. The likes of Alphonse Gangitano prior to his murder had invested much of his money he'd gotten from standover and protection rackets into drug trafficking, alongside his pal Jason Moran. An early customer of the Morans at their base in Broadmeadows was a young bloke named Shane Williams. Shane had a younger brother named Carl, who the Morans met through association. Carl and Jason got along quite well to begin with, but that all changed when, believe it or not, the pair had a disagreement over a piano. They'd eventually end up disagreeing over the ownership of Danielle Maguire's pill press, but first off, it was a piano of Jason's that he believed a mate of Carl's had stolen from him. The pair came to blows one time when Carl wouldn't lag on his piano pilfering mate, Jason eventually got his piano back, but not without losing some of his pride, as the bigger, doughier Carl, who had his arm in a sling at the time, managed to sneak a few punches in during their exchange, denting Jason's ego. It was something that Jason would never let go, and despite him and his crew giving Carl a rather serious pistol whipping and flogging one time after this, and eventually having Carl somewhat in his employ as a driver and gopher of sorts, Tensions between him and Carl only grew as time went on. When he was young, Carl Williams wanted to be a police officer. Time and his experiences changed that desire. Carl's parents, George and Barbara, were blue-collar folk. George worked digging ditches for the Melbourne Board of Works before moving into debt collection for a white goods retailer. Barbara worked at a cigarette factory in Richmond and then for the TAB. Carl was three when they moved to Broadmeadows on the northwest fringe of Metro Melbourne. At this time in the 1980s, Broadie had a very high unemployment rate and a lot of citizens only steps away from going to jail. Carl was just a few years younger than Jason Moran and he too had an older brother who on the surface was much more charming and well put together. Shane Williams was six foot, 125 kilos, funny, smart and well liked. Carl wasn't as outgoing, being much more shy than his older brother, with a baby face and blonde hair. But as younger brothers often do, Carl ended up tagging along with Shane on many of his adventures. When Shane became hooked on heroin, however, those adventures turned him to petty crime, break-ins and burglaries to fund his habit. Carl inevitably went along with his older brother on a few of those expeditions, and that brought him to the attention of local police. When they wrapped a phone book around Carl's head one time, bringing him to tears, it seemed Carl's hopes of donning the blue were dashed, and he set his sights on other goals. Carl went through to Year 11 at Broadmeadows Tech, maths being his only strong point. After leaving school, he worked at a service station and then a supermarket, stacking shelves, but he soon realised there were other opportunities in this world. Living at home with George and Barbara and receiving unemployment benefits Carl became a bookies runner, mixing with shadowy punters, and he formed a crew of miscreant mates who came to the Williamses on a regular basis to play pool and cards. Carl's mum thought he was a bit of a wimp, and maybe he was in some ways. Physically, he wasn't gifted, and he developed an appetite for fast food. But he was gifted with some very good organisational skills. He was unassuming, happy-go-lucky, affable, polite, and he loved a laugh. His thug mates appreciated his skill sets and he wasn't a threat to them. In his early 20s, Carl was a courier for a few mates running a speed lab and he ended up doing a small six-month stint in jail. 
It was an easy time for Carl as he knew a lot of people already. In some ways, it was like finishing his underworld apprenticeship. Once he got out, he kept mostly out of the police's spotlight for the next six years and began making even more colourful friends. It's often suggested Carl's value was in his ability to cook speed, but in reality, he was an operations manager. He acquired and learnt to operate a pill press in time, but he was no amphetamine chef. It was into the 90s that Carl formed a few key relationships. As we said, he'd met Jason Moran and at least in the Underbelly series was portrayed as being a bit of an errand boy for the Moran clan, someone who they didn't have a whole lot of respect for or thought of as particularly capable. They were associates, perhaps not friends, but close enough to do occasional business. And really, this is where the tensions began to rise between Carl Williams and the Moran family after the earlier mentioned piano incident and pistol whipping. Carl had begun seeing a woman named Roberta Masika, who had been married to a friend of the Morans, a man named Dean Stevens. So this had left a bit of a bad taste in the Morans' mouth that their errand boy had gone and done the dirty on one of their own. Carl, meanwhile, seemingly got jack of being a gopher, and went into business making pills for himself. Some contended he actually did this using the Moran's own pill press, or Danielle Maguire's, who the Moran's claimed to own through association, but the Moran's didn't seemingly know this to begin with. They thought he was just pressing pills for them. A bad batch of pills Carl made for the Moran's apparently didn't have enough binding agent, and the pills were crumbling prior to them being sold, but then Jason and Mark Moran realised that Carl had been using their pill press to produce his own gear before selling it cheap in clubs around town, undercutting them. It took them a while to figure this out, despite it going on right under their noses with their own pill press. And that appears to be largely because they underestimated Carl's organisational skills and his drive. The Morans did some recon work to find out who was undercutting them, thinking at first it was maybe the bikies or perhaps other known players such as Tony Mockbell or Nikolai Radev. But it wasn't them. Carl had begun by dealing speed for Tony Mockbell, a Kuwaiti-born, Melbourne-raised drug trafficker who'd been underestimated by police up until this time when he'd recently had a speed lab of his set up next door to his brother's house blow up sky high, losing him close to $80 million in stock and exposing him to police as a rapidly growing drug kingpin. But it barely dented Mockbell's operations. Mockbell and his brothers, who got along with some of the members of the Carlton crew and had business conversations and potentially opportunities with some of them in the past, wasn't necessarily that chummy with them now. We'll talk more about Tony Mockbell as time goes on, but he and Carl had formed a friendship by this time, and Carl was now wanting to become a heavy hitter like Tony in his own right. Along with the help of his father George, Carl had begun pressing cheap ecstasy pills stamped either FUBU or UFO, and flogging these for nearly half the price through his dealers at nightclubs. And they were able to do this by using the drug ketamine, which was previously used predominantly as an anaesthetic to treat wounded soldiers at war. The problem with ketamine was the potential side effects, hallucinations and convulsions, which is predominantly why it was discontinued for military use around the time of the Vietnam War. The stuff was really cheap back in the 90s. Carl and George, with the help of a cook, managed to combine 110 grams of ketamine with just 28 grams of speed and 142 grams of glucose to bind the pills together. 
This made them around 1,000 pills, which they were selling at first for around $15 a pop, later as low as $8 when they refined the mix even further. With the Morans, Mockbells and Radevs of the world selling theirs for around double that, Carl's ever-growing crew of criminal mates continued to sell more and more of his pills, pissing off the tempestuous Jason Moran greatly when he realised what Carl was up to. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Dino Dibra's bedroom was plastered with posters of Scarface, The Godfather, Reservoir Dogs and Pulp Fiction. He fantasised about turning these movies into his reality and one day he'd do just that. Dino was born in 1975 in Sunshine into an Albanian Muslim family and Sunshine, back at this time, wasn't a prosperous place of opportunity like its name suggested. It was described as a multicultural melting pot with migrants from European and Asian countries who spoke limited English and had moved to the area for manufacturing jobs. But in the 70s and 80s, those jobs declined, unemployment rose, and Aussie boys like Dino grew up with socioeconomic disadvantage. At school, Dino formed tight bonds with other young guys in similar circumstances, Johnny Orciello, Mark Malia and Andrew Venuman, known to everyone as Benji. Outside of school, when he wasn't playing Space Invaders, Dino and his buddies began traipsing around sunshine, doing as they pleased and taking what they liked. While they were from mixed backgrounds, Dino's Albanian, Johnny's Italian, Mark's Maltese and Benji's Greek Cypriot, they had a united front, wearing matching tracksuits and gaudy gold jewellery. A well-known local named Paul P.K. Calipolitis was considered to be drug dealer royalty in Sunshine, untouchable in his snakeskin boots and his 78 Kingswood with number plates reading Corrupt. He took the boys under his wing at an early age. Under PK, they became blood brothers, and their juvenile gang was now part of a more serious crew. PK, a ruthless dealer and expert martial artist, gave the boys focus, but not in a good way. They began dealing marijuana for him and learnt about car rebirthing, a criminal enterprise we've discussed before in the Russell Street bombing episode. Dino and his mates were asked to leave school and the crew wasted no time, moving into growing hydroponic marijuana and racking up innumerable driving offences. In 1992, Dino received his first conviction for resisting police and escaping custody. A year later, He received convictions for endangering life and reckless driving. Suspiciously, an arresting officer who Dino tussled with had his car blown up by persons unknown shortly thereafter. Luckily, he wasn't killed. 
Dino was beginning to live out his movie fantasies. He was growing more violent and egotistical by the day. Hopped up on coke and juiced to the gills on steroids, Dino and his pals began to look beyond Sunshine to make a name for themselves. The Sunshine Boys began doing jobs, bagman type stuff, for more notorious crims in the city, the likes of Alphonse Gangitano and the Carlton crew. One day, Dino and Benji were cruising around Port Melbourne looking to fill an order for a VN Holden Calais, and they did just that, but soon discovered, when they got the car back to base, that it was actually a police officer's vehicle, and in the boot was a laptop containing details of a number of undercover police officers and police informants across the state. Benji thought it would be a good idea to sell this laptop to members of the Carlton crew, as they'd probably pay a lot of money for information like this. Dino, however, had another idea, one he'd probably gotten from a movie. They got the address of one particular undercover officer and drove past his house on a weekend while he was out in the garden with his family. The boys gave the officer a wave as they passed. It was a message of sorts and a rather stupid one, because it wasn't long after this that police picked both Dino and Benji up. While being held by police, Dino began bragging to another criminal in the holding cell, telling him about how they'd stolen the vehicle, found the laptop, and drove past the police officer's house. Unfortunately for Dino, this other crim happened to be a police informer. He and Benji were busted. Benji ended up receiving a 12-month sentence and a fine of several thousand dollars. Dino, however, got only half that. And this led to Benji, Mark and Johnny thinking that Dino had dogged on Benji. Their payback for this was to shoot Dino once in each leg, then drive him to the hospital. It was punishment, but they were still mates, at least according to Benji. Johnny felt otherwise, and that bad blood led to Dino doing the same back to Johnny down the line, shooting him and dropping him at the hospital too. The bonds of the Blood Brothers were weakening, the splinters in their previously united front under PK becoming more apparent. They all claimed to still be friends, but the dynamic had noticeably changed. In 1997, Dino was jailed for 18 months due to his horrendous driving record and banned from driving for five years. When he got out, PK set him back up with a car, money and hydroponic setup. But Dino had met other crims inside, He thought he was too big for this small-time dope pushing now. He wanted to go big, to become the biggest, and that all started with moving into synthetics. These weren't tied to plants like pot, heroin and coke. You could make it all year round and the profits would be huge. By now, Dino had worn out his welcome with Alphonse Gangitano, but the Morans were flying with their speed lab and needed dealers. They'd recently handed over the keys to their factory to Carl Williams, a big fast food loving young bloke from the northwestern suburbs. What the Morans didn't know was that Carl was pressing his own pills, using their press, and getting the likes of Dino Dibra to push them through clubs like Heat in Crown Casino and Dome in Paran for half the price. Dino had aligned himself with the upcoming Williams family, Mark Malia was seemingly working for Nikolai Radev, and Benji had formed a tight bond with Mick Gatto, head of the Carlton crew. Johnny Orciello had found God and left the scene altogether, the smartest choice of all four. But Dino didn't care about that. He was going to be the boss. With a head full of coke and a body full of synthetic testosterone, Dino was involved in the shooting of a bouncer outside Dome Nightclub over a distribution disagreement. 
He was becoming more and more erratic by the day, and now he had a protege, a young guy from the Carlton area named Rocco Arico. Rocco had spent his youth in his parents' pizza cafe and pool hall, a place called Johnny's Green Room. This was actually where Chopper had given Alphonse his first gun, incidentally. Dino had shown Rocco the ropes with dealing and standing over nightclub patrons for their cars, an increasingly favourite pastime of the pair. It didn't take much brain power demanding a nightclubber's car, which was lucky, because the pair didn't seemingly have much intellect at this point in time. Their next criminal venture would prove that. Mad Richard Mladenik had not long gotten out of jail. He was a standover man and had formed a drug habit. He was also getting around saying that he'd been employed as muscle for none other than Mark Moran. How much truth there was in that, we don't know. What we do know is that the suggestion of it was enough for Dino Dibra and Rocco Arico to kidnap Mad Richard with the hopes of claiming a ransom for him off the Morans, earning themselves a tidy sum. When Mad Richard was discussing a drug purchase with the pair, they kicked, punched and pistol whipped him before shoving him into the boot of their car. They drove off, discussing their plan to contact the Morans next. What they failed to realise was that the boot of their car could be opened from the inside. Mad Richard escaped in the middle of Footscray Road and began running through traffic trying to get away from the pair. But the youthful and juiced up Dino and Rocco easily caught up and recaptured Mad Richard. Their demands to the Morans, however, fell on deaf ears, as they didn't seem to care too much about Mad Richard, claiming that they didn't need bodyguards. Dino and Rocco's $20,000 ransom was whittled down to $5,000, a disappointing result for the pair, who thought they'd planned this thing out to perfection. They hadn't. They also hadn't realised that the police had them bugged, listening in on their conversations since Dino was suspected in the recent Dome nightclub shooting. When police arrived at his house to question Dino a bit further on the Dome nightclub incident, they found Mad Richard still in the boot. Both Dino and Rocco were charged with a number of offences while Mad Richard got to go home. But Richard wasn't the only man dubbed Mad who Dino Dibra had violent dealings with. Charles Aguiali wanted to be called Machine Gun Charlie, but after biting off the best part of a man's nose during an altercation in his younger days, it was the Mad moniker that stuck. Mad Charlie referred to himself as the Don, and by the age of 18, he was well known to police, having racked up convictions for rape, assault, armed robbery, drug and firearms offences. An old school crook who was born in Hungary in 1956, Mad Charlie had been in Australia since he was eight years old. In time, he teamed up with Chopper Reed, the pair forming a standover team who robbed massage parlours. The pair later fell out over Chopper's perception that Charlie failed to retaliate one time when another Melbourne crook bashed him. Despite his reputation as a violent and berserk individual, particularly when on the booze and drugs, Mad Charlie was well liked by police for his gregarious and friendly disposition and his willingness to provide information and strike a deal with them. Of course, he only did this when it suited him or steered attention away from his own activities, activities which moving into the 90s became focused on the amphetamine trade. While claiming sickness benefits for an alleged ulcer, Mad Charlie began literally forcing people to become speed cooks for him. One time, he blindfolded a chemistry graduate named Paul Lester 
and took him to a property in Gippsland to manufacture the product. And while he didn't stick exclusively to the drug trade, he continued to plan different burglaries and armed robberies, his mainstream of income became increasingly reliant on drugs. And violence followed Mad Charlie. In 1989, he was shot in the stomach outside his home in South Caulfield. He retaliated on this occasion, shooting a man in a St Kilda hotel car park a short time later in payback. In 1997, Mad Charlie's trigger finger landed him in hot water once again when he was charged with attempted murder after shooting a bloke outside a panel beaters in Paran. After a number of months in remand awaiting trial, the landscape outside changed and Mad Charlie was no longer the drug kingpin he once was. Upon his release, when the charge didn't stick, he was set to reclaim his throne, whether it was real or perceived but someone had other ideas about that. On the 22nd of November 1998, Mad Charlie had a big drinking session with some mates. Starting at the London Tavern in Caulfield, Mad Charlie and his buddies ended up at the Newmarket Hotel in St Kilda, arriving sometime before 11pm. The crew of four were relatively quiet, and at some stage during the evening, Charlie went off with someone the other guys didn't know. Upon his return, he was noticeably affected by drugs, Either speed or coke, a friend would later surmise. His friends also heard Charlie make a couple of calls to a guy named Nino or Dino, who he asked to come down to the pub, but this guy never showed up. The quartet had another couple of pots before leaving the new market. Mad Charlie ended up at one of this friend's places in Balaclava after this. Around quarter to one, he hailed a taxi and was dropped at his home in Bamborough Road, South Caulfield at 12.51am. Mad Charlie's house was heavily fortified, with big security gates and CCTV. As he walked through the gates and down his driveway, a gunman emerged from the shadows and shot Mad Charlie four times in the head. The killer took off on foot across neighbouring lawns, and a neighbour who'd heard the shots rang police. Local officers, however, couldn't see his body behind his security fence when they attended, and Mad Charlie wasn't discovered until 8am the following morning by his partner of 10 years. Ali saw Mad Charlie's body lying in a pool of blood in their driveway, and she'd seen it on their CCTV system. Unfortunately, the system was only operating, not recording, at the time of his murder. Theories on motive for Mad Charlie's killings ranged from it being part of a hostile takeover to him being owed in the vicinity of $100,000 and being killed over that. Whatever the case, his murder remains unsolved and Dino Dibra remains the prime suspect. By this time, Dino had seemingly patched things up with his buddy Benji. Carl's manufacturing was on the up and up and Dino was cashing in. His parents were even cleaning Carl and Roberta's house. But like all of the conditional friendships in the criminal underworld, these allegiances would soon change. On October the 13th, 1999, Carl Williams was preparing to celebrate his birthday. His mum had baked him a chocolate cake. But he had some business to attend to first, a meeting with Mark and Jason Moran, a meeting that sowed the seeds of the Melbourne gangland killings. And that's exactly where we'll resume this story next week in part two. Your thoughts, Chloe? Yeah, um, the thing that always astounds me about this story or these collection of people is the level of crime and violence. I think it's the assumption that they're just perpetrating so many crime upon crime upon crime. You know, the drug manufacturing, the drug use, the potential involvement in shootings, the intricate web of 
people and things done is just so shocking to me, no matter how many times I hear it. And I mean, living in Melbourne, having these things be spoken about and covered so often and so many times, it really just astounds me every time. That's kind of, I'm just dumbfounded at this point. Yeah. (laughs) That's really my thoughts. (laughs) Yeah. And it's always that thing we talk about, that sort of insidious nature. I think what Mm. gets me is just how many of these people just know each other and they just attract each other. Yeah. And um, one minute they're mates and the next minute they're sort of killing each other and there's those those alliances sort of changed at a moment's notice. So, yep. But so far to this point, you know, we've seen two big names have gone down here, two yep. who could have been, you know, maybe much bigger into the the drugs or at least trying to become that way than is commonly thought, being um, Alphonse and uh, and Mad Charlie. Mm. Their, uh, you know, their demise would lead to a number of middleweights, as the story goes, mm. for, for a lack of a better term, uh, trying to make their way up. So some of those guys did, and I suppose are now household names mm. who we discussed in this episode, some maybe not so much. And I'll be talking about a few of those guys in the midweek interlude mini-sode, setting the scene a bit more for part two next week. Yeah, and what was that thing we were talking about at the start, Sean, about Mad Charlie's surname and Chopper's little quip yes. after he passed away? Yeah, it was uh, weird. <laughs> something about that uh, no one could ever. Chopper said something about him never being able to pronounce his surname. In <laughs> um, and I think uh, I couldn't find anywhere. Everyone, any coverage on it seemed to avoid <laughs> saying his last name because <laughs> I don't think anyone truly knows how to say it. But uh, all reporters avoided with- as well. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But uh, anyhow. Um, okay. Well, for the first time in 2020, let's move on to happy thoughts. So, what's yours, Sean? Uh, I may have mentioned already, but as you know, Chloe, but uh, we are having a, a third little baby, yeah. which we uh, are having in the middle of this year. And over the break, we found out that it's a girl. So I'll, be, I'll have three <laughs> girls. It'll be an estrogen tornado <laughs> at, at my house in years to come. <laughs> at least you know. At least you're ready for what's going to come potentially. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, my happy thought is um, I haven't talked about dogs for a while and um, my dogs later on today are booked in for a groom. Um, one of them is a poodle mix and gets into this weird version of a bear crossed with a lamb at this point where she basically can't see and it happens so fast. It's like one day she's a normal dog, next day she's some overgrown weed um, and she's at that point now um, and it's just really funny to see her before and after because once she comes out, um, the other dogs don't really have any kind of transformation. They don't have crazy hair like her, but she comes out yeah, this weird little mutant and then comes out with these giant eyes that you can see that you haven't seen for a month and I call her Big Eyes McGee. You know, she's coming back to town this afternoon so I'm Uh, genuinely just really excited to be amused by that. (laughs) That's mine. Sounds like a a good afternoon. (laughs) And that's it from us. If you want to get in touch, you can email us at truebluecrime at gmail.com. You can join our Facebook group, which is called True Blue Crime Podcast. And you can find us on Instagram by searching True Blue Crime. If you'd like to support the show, you can head over to our Patreon page. The link's in the show notes. For $5 per month, you can support the current free content we make on the main feed and get our bonus monthly Blue Label episodes. That's it for part one. I'll be back uh, in a few days' time with a little interlude and we'll be back with a full second episode, part two, uh, Monday-ish next week. Yeah. See you then, everyone. Bye. Bye.